Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Okay, I want to read from Zechariah chapter 3. We're going through the book of Zechariah and looking at how um, the prophet points us to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And um, I want to look at uh, Zechariah chapter 3 this week and uh, I'll read from the New Living Translation. Then the angel of the Lord showed me Jeshua, or Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And the accuser of Satan was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Joshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This man is like a burning stick that's been snatched from the fire. And Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes and turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I've taken away your sin and now I've given you these fine new clothes. Then I said, they should place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. And then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Jeshua and said, This is what the Lord of the heavens' armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among the others standing there. And listen to me, Jeshua the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Now look at the jewel I've set before Jeshua, a single stone with seven facets. I will grave an inscription on it, says the Lord of the heaven armies, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your grapevine and fig tree. I've just planted a grapevine. It's growing very nicely. Next year, hopefully, we'll get some grapes. That's just a complete aside from this, but um, it's nice to, to be able to do it. So, when I was preparing uh, this talk, the Zechariah Haggai um, are called the Restoration Prophets because fundamentally they're there to restore the people of God back to their first love back to zeal for the Lord, and back to getting on with the purposes of God. I was thinking about a time when I was in a congregation like this, and uh, just at the end, there was a powerful move of God in the congregation, and uh, a guy came to the front and um, just sobbing, and uh, just praying for him, and realising actually that really had was needing to be restored, had had difficult situations in other churches, situations that really had caused him damage and uh, just left him, you know, where do I fit? And over the years, I can honestly say I have prayed with many people in a similar situation who kind of 
lost their way. And uh, it's not an unusual thing if you have been a Christian. I was a Christian at 16, 66 now, like a long time. And actually to maintain zeal for that long, actually, you know, going through many different things. We've adopted kids, we've planted churches, we've had many situations that actually just knock you, make you feel like, can you carry on? And uh, so it's not an unusual thing to find yourself in a situation where basically you need some level of restoration. Sometimes it's major. Sometimes you've, it's been, you've been seriously damaged. Sometimes you've just given up completely. Sometimes you feel a total failure. Other times, when I say it's minor restoration, it's times when you've just drifted. You've kind of been zealous and now you're just going through the motions you know you're turning up for things you're you know but it it isn't like it used to be you're not engaged and the need of a of being restored back is 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 important so I feel this the restoration prophets speak to us constantly and uh, Zachariah in particular here Um, is being used by God to bring the people of God back to being fully focused on the purposes of God. But in that, he's looking for individuals, and Joshua, or Jeshu, the high priest, was one of them that had completely lost their way and were feeling rubbish, were feeling a failure, and uh, not only prophesying with Haggai to the whole community of the church or the, of, of Israel, but also individually going to people and prophesying to them. And this chapter is a fantastic chapter of restoration. It points eventually to the Lord Jesus, the branch, but in its context, it's bringing restoration to a very important person in the people of God who had completely, in his thoughts, blown it. And uh, if I had given chapter four, it's probably my most favourite chapter, so I was a bit disappointed they didn't give me that one. And that is Zerubbabel, who was the leader. Again, like Joshua, had lost his way. So if that's next week, someone else has got the joy of seeing Zerubbabel brought back to the purposes of, of God. So just a little bit of background uh, uh, to this. Joshua and Zerubbabel were in Babylon when they heard the decree from Cyrus, the, uh, the uh, new um, emperor of this massive, uh, wor- uh, in their world, worldwide, it wasn't quite worldwide, but it was the biggest thing going in terms of an empire, giving a decree that basically said, you who are captive in Babylon, you Israelites who were taken from Jerusalem, you are now able to go back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land and rebuild your nation. And uh, this Persian king was actually doing what uh, had been prophesied by Jeremiah 70 years before, that after 70 years, there would be a king who would give them permission 
to go from captivity because they'd been there that long, been taken from Jerusalem to go back. And so Joshua and Zerubbabel had this great task of leading a people back to their homeland. And, uh, you know, it may sound very exciting. I'm a pioneer and with pioneering hat on, this is how I work. I love a new thing. My wife is completely the opposite. She's wired. I don't know how we've managed for 40 years to be married, but we are completely like, whatever we are on the spectrum, we're completely the opposite. I mean, not even marginally, we are like poles of art. So, so I get very excited about a new thing. She says, how much is it going to cost, Colin? <laughs> You know, that. And so these pioneers, you can imagine getting really excited about. We're going back. They've been by the waters of Babylon, we read in the Psalms, singing about Zion, lamenting about Zion, praying for about Zion that they would get back there. So they round up actually about 42,000 people, which is, sounds a lot. But I tell you this, if you're going back to a nation that's been destroyed, that isn't that many. And also, there was loads of people, and Nehemiah, we learn, (laughs) at least his parents probably, had said, we're not going. (laughs) Or we can't go, because the king went. So not everybody went. So even in their journey back, there was people who were kind of saying goodbye to friends who wanted to stay in Babylon, but these fantastic leaders, the high priest and the kind of civic leader, they bring these 42,000 people over hundreds of miles back to the dream that they had, that God would help them build a temple and build a city. I don't know if any of you saw the pictures of Mariupol in uh, Ukraine when it was completely flattened. I mean, it was devastating, wasn't it? I mean, absolutely devastating, heartbreaking. If you translate that to Jerusalem, that's what the Babylonians had done to Jerusalem. Completely obliterated it. They were so annoyed with the Israelites (laughs) that they they just flattened it. They thought, there's never going to be a city here again. So when these people are going back, when they arrive in Jerusalem, that's what they see. If you can picture Marupal, you can picture, just think about going back without JCBs, <laughs> without all the things that we think about building and with your bare hands. That's what they were going to go for. And so that's what it was like when they entered back into Jerusalem. We lived in America for two years and we lived on the northeast coast of America and uh, where we lived was Durham, down the road was Dover (laughs) and uh, Manchester was one of the key places in New England. Everywhere was Rochester, was where our church building was. It was like New New England, literally. But it's where the Pilgrim Fathers landed in the Mayflower. I think, I don't know, top of my head, it was about 150, I think, but it's top of my head. 
number, not a great number, who basically have made this journey from England to what they will see as the promised land, that they could build a new community away from the kind of tyranny that was in uh, the UK against persecution for the Puritans and others. And so they land there fundamentally without much clothing. <laughs> they, they literally were badly equipped. A good number of them died through the first year. And, um, you know, I want to cry, but it's because every year while we're there, in November, we would go to people's houses and they would read the story. And you'd just sit there in situ. And, uh, and basically, God protected a few of them and they built the community and built the nation and with other nations who came there. But what I'm trying to say is, it's a big deal to go and carve out a new thing. So, and I just want you to get the, this kind of picture of brave people, zealous pioneers, full of hope, full of kind of, God is with us. Jeremiah's prophesied it. <laughs> We're going to do something. But what you are dealing with is devastation. And like the pilgrims going to America, you've got to plant crops that are going to take a year to grow. And you haven't really got, you know, enough food <laughs> for that. And that's, that's the world that they were living in. It sounds a little bit romantic as we read it here, but in reality... It was Marupal. It was the pilgrims. It was desperate, difficult. But these people believed God. <laughs> they were pioneers who believed they were in the purposes of God uh, for their generation. And, uh, you know, as they began to build, they started the temple. Great celebration bit like us when we start our new sites. It's just always exciting. And there's always more people there on the first day than there is a year later. It's just... <laughs> the numbers go that way, not that way normally. Reddish, actually, is our only site we've done, which has actually gone that way from get-go. Start with about 15 and about 40. The rest... <laughs> And you try and get them out of a nosedive. You know, because the reality is everything's exciting to start with and then you actually have to work at it. And so fundamentally, they start excitement. But there are some people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas because for 70 years, this has been a desolate wasteland, nobody uh, administering it. And so actually tribes and people and actually people who lived there before it was kind of devastated Babylonians and were not taken away, have actually built a life there. So you've got this strange mixture of devastation, but some people living there. And they didn't like 42,000 people coming back. <laughs> they didn't like the idea that a new building, a temple and a nation would be built. And so they started persecuting, they started to make it difficult. They started writing letters to the Persian emperor and basically saying, hey, these are bad people you've sent here. They're going to build something and then they're going to make war on you. <laughs> they're going to actually make it really difficult for you. Are you 
Sure, and they, so they would steal lies, they would try their best to disrupt, and eventually the emperor decided, let's make them stop the work. And so there was an edict from the biggest emperor in the known world there, the Persian emperor, that this work has to stop. And these people started out zealously, resisted as much as they could this persecution and this difficulty. But in the end, you know, when you get a letter from the ruling empire, who are, you are just a little handful of people. In the end, they just did not have the energy to carry on. So basically, they downed tools and decided, okay, we need to survive here. Let's try and build our own farms. Let's try and plant our own. Let's build our own houses. Let's basically just go into survival mode. And so that's literally what they did. And Haggai pointed out, and we'll see this right at the very end, when he was prophesying, that as you did this, thinking that, okay, we can't build the temple, we can't build the city, but we can build our own homesteads, that you would be okay? And he said, actually, it hasn't worked for you, has it? Look how much you really have planted. Look at that vine, Colin, that you planted. Didn't produce what you just said it would <laughs> in this sermon <laughs> next year. And that's exactly what happened. That even though they put all their energy into self-sufficiency, which wasn't a bad thing, <laughs> actually, they still didn't have enough. And internally, they knew they had drifted from the purposes of God to something that was maintenance and not actually what God wanted them to do. And so basically, this broken people and these broken leaders had Zachariah and Haggai raised up to talk to them. And this chapter, and we'll, I've given you more of the background because uh, we'll quickly go through it now, but just literally it helps to, to nail what we're doing. Joshua, the high priest, or Jeshua, it's pronounced either way um, in the Bible there. You can imagine him looking at Jerusalem, looking at this temple that's just, I say, half-baked. It's literally just a foundation. And it shouts to him, you are a failure. I don't know if that's happened to you, but you look at something that you try to do and it hasn't worked. And it, it's like it shouts back to you. <laughs> you are a failure. It's like, and you can imagine the middle of the night at four in the morning, Satan saying, Jeshua, you are a failure. And so we have this uh, situation with Jeshua and an angel, and in front of him it says the angel of the Lord, which is actually the pre, pre-incarnate Jesus. It's like Jesus before he became a man, before he, standing there. And it says this, that the, the, it says, and um, then that angel of the Lord showed me Jeshua the Lord, and the, and, the, and, and the accuser Satan was there, and the angel at the angel's right hand making accusations against Jeshu. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. I, the Lord, 
have chosen Jerusalem, rebukes you. And so here we have Satan doing what Satan does. He, he tries to nobble people when they're down. The worst time for me is three or four in the morning <laughs> when things have not gone well and I wake up and you know there's a massive accuser that knows that's the worst time <laughs> for, to bring back the things that are going wrong. And here we have this situation of Satan accusing Joshua. And he's basically saying, nothing has been built. <laughs> and all the people are not interested. You are the leader of a people who are not interested in the purposes of God. And you feel bad. That's the only mention of Satan in this verse, because you see, Jesus, the pre-incarnate, angel of the Lord here, deals with Satan in an instance. And it's just fast, it's great, he says, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. I, the Lord, who chose Jerusalem, rebukes you. This man is a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. You see, basically, we've got to understand that our God is for us. And though Satan was actually saying, when I say truthful things, you understand they were reality. <laughs> he did feel sinful. He had given up. So it's not like there were lies, but what was lies was that actually you are finished. <laughs> and God says, I rebuke you, Satan. Is Satan rebuking Joshua, and is the Lord Almighty rebuking Satan. His was the last word. <laughs> and I just want to encourage you that God's word is the last word. <laughs> not your deeds, not your sin, not the accusations of the devil, but God's word is the last word. He is the beginning and the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. Amen. Amen. It's a great chapter. I've given you far too much intro, so I can't do too much here. But it just helps you see what God is doing here. He's restoring a zealous believer back to his rightful place. And so he's first of all saying... Satan, you have no power here. This is my man who I have got like a burning bush from the fire. And then he says this, Joshua's clothes were filthy. He just felt totally sinful and bad. So the angel said, take off his filthy clothes. And he says, see, I have taken away your sins. It's just, a, these are one-liners. And that's what Jesus has done once and for all. When I say they're one-liners, you understand that metaphorically. They're just done. Joshua, you're a picture of the future. Your sins have gone. Hey, and your turban, and that was his priestly turban that meant he could go and minister in the temple. It was like rubbish. He said, put a brand new one on. Let him go and minister. Just so many people I've seen restored back to ministry. Just, just even this year seeing people who have been uh, uh, dealt terribly by different people, feeling like they have no 
future in the kingdom of God and just the passengers now. Just watching God break into their life and watching the minister and do many things. And, and you know, I'm just there clapping them on thinking, what a restoration. <laughs> There's a new turban on their head. God has done something remarkable. I would say this, if there's anything that gives more pleasure, it is just watching more and more people get back to being on fire for the purposes of God. There's too many people who are sitting feeling like they're not worthy when he is worthy and therefore he's put a new turban on his head. And then says this, and uh, he said, Um, Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of the heaven armies says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards, and I will let you walk among the others standing here. And so basically, sins forgiven, ministry restored, and then a future. (laughs) And it was a future. Come on, Joshua, get back to serving me. Get back to following me properly. And then you can stand with the greats. That's my word. <laughs> Do you know, it's like there's a restoration back to wholehearted commitment and love for God. And then, as we just can bring this in to land, it says this in verse 8. I'm just going through verse by verse as you understand. Listen to me, Joshua the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Saying, what has just happened to you is just a picture. It's a symbol. It's a token of what is going to come. And then he says, well, what is going to come? And it says, as soon I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Now look at the jewel I have set before Joshua, the single stone with seven facets. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of the heavens armies, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. That your sins have been removed, Joshua. That's just one person in one situation. The branch is coming. The branch is coming. The servant of the Lord is coming who's going to remove the sins of the nation in one day. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son the branch (laughs) that whosoever believed in him. Would not perish but have eternal life. That's why I love these chapters. I love it because I can get myself into the story. I can get myself into Joshua. And if I was doing the next one, Zerubbabel, the personal work, an individual who loses their way. And that has happened to me numbers of times over the years. Sometimes quite devastatingly to a point where I'm thinking... There was one point I thought, I, I can't do this anymore. We'll buy a house in Glossop, honestly. And uh, we'll get, we've got a dog. We'll just we'll go and two years try to buy a house. Couldn't get our house sold. My wife said, Colin, we're going the wrong way. She was a Zachariah. 
we should be going to Levenshulme, into the centre of everything, not away. We then went to South Africa, got a phone call from, the uh, from their stage and saying, this is literally within a month, you have got a cash buyer on your house. You've got to move quickly. Isn't God good? You see, God wants to restore us from sometimes ourselves. And then we have the branch. <laughs> the restorer of everything. <laughs> that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be a total restoration of all that has been damaged. <laughs> all that has been lost. Creation's groaning in anticipation. <laughs> The world is groaning in anticipation of the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again, who in one day redeemed the sins of the world and in another day will come to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we live in the middle of all that. <laughs> Beloved by God, forgiven, restored, and my plea, my, my, from the bottom of my heart, let the restorer restore you. Whether you feel far away or a millimetre away. Whether you feel like this thing shouting at you, you're a failure. Or whether you feel marginally disconnected. <laughs> the restorer is here.